Notes, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord. We're in a sermon series. We've just started unpacking what is the Christian mindset. And we're going through 1 Corinthians, looking at a number of uh, controversies in the church and seeing how does Paul bring to bear what Christians believe to, to advise the early church. He doesn't just give advice and say, do this, but don't do that. He's unpacking the very heart of what it is Christians believe. And he's saying, if you're struggling with this controversy, it's because you're not really living out what you believe. You're not living in light of the gospel. You're not living in true light of the resurrection. And today's passage is on divisions in the church. And divisions have always posed a challenge for the church because the church is, I think without a doubt, the most diverse group of people in the world. And that is a wonderful, beautiful thing, right? And we are united amidst all our diversity, right? The many unique gifts that everybody brings, but, but with all that brings challenges. And... In our, and today, I think that challenge is greater than ever because our society is extremely consumerist and individualistic, and not only the church deals with divisions, but society in general. Um, so we need to know, how do we deal with divisions? And Paul says today, if you're being torn apart by divisions, then you aren't living out what you say you believe. You aren't living out in light of the, the resurrection. Before I jump in, let me pray. God, I pray that you would, that you would unite us um, by who you are. Um, God, speak to us through these words. God, these words, if they're just me, they're empty and useless. But God, speak, be powerfully present. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're mixing everything up today. Today I have four points for us. It's, it's a short sermon, though. Um, we're going to look at the problem, the deeper problem, so it's two, right? The picture of salvation and the power of the person. Okay, so, so problem, problem, picture, and power. Okay, so first, the problem of divisions. So, straightforward. The Corinthian church is being torn apart by competing factions. People are fighting, people are quarreling, and now people are marking sides by choosing leaders. Right? Some people say, well, I follow Paul, you've got the Apollos crowd, you've got the Peter crowd, you've got this Jesus crowd, we'll come back to them. And uh, so what's going on? Well, a little background. In Acts 18, Paul comes to Corinth from Athens. 
and he shares the gospel and people come to faith and he builds up the church and the church is formed. And shortly after, this guy Apollos comes and he, he's awesome and he further builds up the church. And so now the church is growing and no surprise, church growth leads to church conflict. Right? Could you believe it? Um, and Paul says that these divisions will lead to disaster for the church. So why are divisions forming? This is one of those cases where we wish Paul was writing a letter to us rather than the Corinthians, right? He doesn't tell them, right? They know. Um, so, but we can guess. We can sort of figure out why are divisions forming based on what we know about conflict and divisions. So some of this is, at least at this point, it's a power grab, right? You want power? You follow a powerful person or you say, that guy, you see that authority, he's the guy we're behind. So some of this is jockeying for power. But the conflict probably didn't start in a vacuum of jockeying for power. It didn't start out of nowhere. Now, it's really interesting to consider the four groups that Paul describes. Okay? So first there's the Paul group. Well, who are these people? Well, Paul's the guy who started the church. So the people who are behind Paul, they're either the ones who were there at the beginning or they wish they were, right? That's when things were really exciting. That's when things were happening. And they're loyal to the guy who introduced them and everybody to Jesus. And maybe even they humbly recognize who are we to, to just modify and change and throw out what Paul has done. I mean, we learn from him. So that's the Paul group. Then there's Apollos. So we know from Acts that Apollos was an incredibly skilled speaker. He was trained in rhetoric and oratory. He spoke beautifully and eloquently, and he really knew the scriptures. So people are blown away by the way Apollos just opens up the Old Testament to them. All right, when Apollos teaches, the scriptures are captivating, and they're compelling and convicting and beautiful. And the people who, those are the people who are behind Apollos. Then there's Peter. Well, and in the passage he's called Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, and that's probably significant. So Peter, right, he's an original disciple, and he's not just one of the twelve. He's like one of the three inner ring, right? And he's like the, one of the leaders of the churches in, in the church in Jerusalem. So he's obviously got the most authentic traditional teaching, right? He goes back farther than Paul. Uh, but also, Peter's the only lead, leader from Israel. So, Paul is from Tarsus, and Apollos is from Alexandria. So, Peter might appeal to the people who care most about Jewish tradition. Right? So, the Jewish Christians might particularly uh, favor um, Peter, Peter as the most authentically Christian, Jewish Christian. Right? They might not be comfortable with the ways that the Gentiles like to worship or the things that the Gentiles do. And, and they may understandably worry that, that modern pagan practices are going to find their way into the church and corrupt it. Okay? So those could be the people behind Peter. Then there's this We Follow Christ group. Um, and the letter here and later in chapter 3 makes clear these aren't the pure, devoted ones that everybody should be like. They're also stirring up conflict and strife. They have the right name, but they have the wrong motives. All right, so how are they stirring up strife? Well, 
This is a group that thinks they don't need any leader. They don't need anybody to teach them, to help them follow Jesus. They don't need any authority. They probably don't need to be in fellowship with Christians who think differently from them either. Right? They've got their Jesus and they're cool. Now, can you, I mean, can you hear modern church divisions in this list? I don't think it's quite exhaustive, but it's, it's pretty amazing, right? And I also want to say, is there anything wrong with loyalty to the guy who introduced you and everybody to Christ? Or with good preaching and teaching and a commitment to knowing and studying and living out the scriptures? Or to, with respecting tradition or practicing your religion authentically? Of course, is there anything wrong with claiming that all human leaders are subservient to Christ? These are all very good things. That's kind of the point. And I'm going to hold you in suspense for a little bit longer. And so, you know, Why is that the point? Well, let's look at what Paul doesn't do to address their problem. Okay? Paul doesn't do what I just did. He doesn't point out and say, hey, each side has something going for it. So, you know, that's a good thing, right? He doesn't just say coexist, appreciate everybody else, because that's not the problem. He doesn't say everybody has their preference. I'm an economist. Every, every, you know, people have preferences. You know, he doesn't say just let people do what they like best and just don't worry about it. Let the Peter group and the Apollos group just let them do their thing. The problem goes deeper than preferences. He doesn't affirm the different leaders and say, guys, just coexist. That's not the problem. That's not what's going on. Paul also doesn't relativize the differences. He doesn't say, Apollos and Peter, who can really tell them apart? Or They're not really that different. You know, if you just look at it from a different perspective. He could have done those things, but that would have just been a surface-level approach, trying to hold things together when there's a real deep problem. And that brings us to the deeper problem, and the deeper problem is idolatry. Okay, you might, that, you might not have expected that to come, um, might sound strange. Let me explain. Hear me out. Idolatry in the Bible is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. It's not primarily worshiping statues of wood or gold or whatever, but we make something an idol when we take a created thing, and created things are good, and we make it an object of our worship. We make it the object of our devotion. We make it the thing we live for and we fight for. And that's why in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel says to Israel's leaders, he says, you've taken your idols into your heart. He's not literally making a statement about, but he's saying the point of our idolatry is it's where our hearts are. So divisions arise as people's commitments to good things became ultimate things. And when we begin to feel like the thing we value ultimately is threatened, we get nervous, and we jockey for power. Right? So interestingly, the declaration, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, it's literally, I am of Paul. And this is how the pagans would declare their allegiance to their local pagan gods. I am of Athena. I am of Artemis. So, I don't know whether the Corinthians realize it or not, they're making idolatrous commitments to their leaders. I am of Peter. The divisions are not just matters of preference. They're matters of idolatry. 
They reflect the idolatrous nature of the human heart. And Paul knows that unless they start living in light of the gospel, these divisions, these idolatrous divisions, are going to tear the church apart. And this happens all the time. Not just in the church. Every group is defined around something. There's something that makes the group. And that something is the ultimate for the group. And, you know, you don't need an academic researcher to tell you. You just look around. People in groups, they always create barriers to exclude and to put down others. Right? We create divisions to exclude and we exclude and put down in order to protect what is ultimate. And that's why we defend our position in ugly ways, deceptive ways. Sometimes we deceive ourselves with what we're willing to do to defend what is our ultimate. Right? So here, we see people appealing to personality and to leaders to have more authority for their position. Right? Or we might use truth abusively. We might say something that's true, but we're using it in a way to get our way. So suppose you're, you feel threatened by Apollos. You might say... You might say, Apollos doesn't leave room for the Spirit when he preaches. He's too, he's too together, right? Or if you feel threatened by Paul, you might say, Paul's teaching on grace is leading people to sin. There's too much of this grace stuff. We need to emphasize good morals, right? Or you feel threatened by the Gentiles. You might say, you know, we shouldn't let culture influence how we do church. And what's tricky is there's... There's a kernel of truth to each of these, right? But that's not how we're using them. Now, why does this happen? Because what we see here is just one example, in particular, of what we see of idolatry in general. And every problem in the world starts with idolatry. That's why the Ten Commandments start with, you shall have no other God before me, and don't make idols. Because you can't break any other commandment without first breaking the first. You can't disobey God unless there's something else you love more. There's something else you're more devoted to, something else that is your greater good. You disobey when you pursue your idol instead of God. And we can trace all our social and personal problems to making good things ultimate. And so we make our career our ultimate professional success or getting that next internship or, or academic uh, you know, excellence, if that's our ultimate, it turns us into workaholics. We look to work to bring the comfort and significance that only Christ can. When work is shaky, we're overwhelmed by anxiety. We crave the praise of our boss, but the criticism of our boss sends us reeling. Right? Or we make comfort or pleasure or experience our ultimate. Right? And we never have enough pleasure. We're always looking for the next vacation or holiday. We never have enough money to spend. Or we never have enough money saved up. We lie and we cheat because our personal ambition is at stake. Right? Or we commit adultery or we abandon our kids because we've made individual freedom or personal expression, or our needs, whatever they may be, are ultimate. And we can trace almost every social tear in, the fa- tear in the social fabric to the ways we make our ethnicity, or race, or class, or status, whatever it is, our ultimate. 
And this is what's crucial for the church. What defines the church, the thing that is our ultimate, is unity with Jesus. All right? And that's why we, we just said, we worship you. Like, we live to worship God. That's, that's what the church is about. That's our ultimate. And this means that the connection we have with other Christians is far greater than any other social bond we could have. And it also transcends any social barrier that could come between us. As people united to the risen Christ, we can't let any good thing become ultimate and divide us. Okay? Now, I want to talk about a problem that I don't particularly see at CBC, but it's a problem we should talk about. Okay? Um, so, you might know this. Uh, the last 30, 40 years or so, many Christians have um, put a tremendous emphasis on racial reconciliation. And so Christians have reached across racial and ethnic divides to worship together, to understand each other, to, uh, to apologize and to confess past sins, to forgive one another. And the church made significant, significant progress in the last 30 years or so. But I, was, I recently read something by a Christian sociologist who studied this for the last 20 years or so, I think. And he, was, what he said shocked me. He said the recent political climate has effectively completely undone all the progress that has been made. Again, I'm not saying I see this at CBC, but if this is happening in the world, in the church, we should, we should know. So why has this happened? Because politics has become the ultimate idol. Good policies and good politicians are good, but we've endowed them with ultimate messianic hopes. And our politics have become incredibly polarized. And our now political polarization is breaking the church apart in America. And apparently, in the church at large, our commitments to our political parties are stronger than our commitments to worship with people who vote differently from us. And it's a big, this is hard, right? It's not like we just say, Avoid divisions, and it just happens easily. Divisions are immense, terrible, terrifying challenge. If this was easy, we wouldn't be dealing with these problems, right? So Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you dare do this if you believe the good news of Jesus, because exclusion and division are completely incompatible with the truth of the resurrection. So what we need is a group identity that does not lead to oppression and exclusion and power grabbing. And we need an ultimate good that will dethrone the idols of our heart. So what's the solution? Okay, so that's the problem and the deeper problem. So third, the picture of salvation. Right, so, so we just said, unity is the ultimate for Christians. So how do we make sure that unity around Jesus is actually strong enough to fight the divisions, right? Okay, so to answer that, Paul gives us a, a picture of salvation to focus on. He, Paul's basically telling the Corinthians here and in the, the, the next few chapters that they're suffering from divisions because they don't understand the nature of their salvation. And so Paul starts by asking three rhetorical questions. He says, was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? 
And were you baptized into Paul's name? Why is he doing that? What's he doing? Well, these three questions are giving us a sort of three different views on salvation. Three different views on what does it mean to be united to Christ and why does that matter? So, going backwards, starting with the last question. So, baptism. We're united to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That's what baptism means. And we could spend lots of time talking about it, um, but Christians everywhere have always agreed that baptism is about the spiritual reality of our being united to Christ. Christ died, and we died with him. Christ rose, we are raised with him. Christ lived a perfect life, and we are clothed in his righteousness. And our baptism also captures that we receive the Holy Spirit when we are joined to Christ. Just like when he was baptized, the Spirit descended on him. So, remember, these three pictures are what it means to be a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, you might think that what it means to be a Christian is to like do good things and God will accept you. But if you can't tell from the laugh, that's not it. What it means to be a Christian is that Jesus has done something for you. So what? Okay, second. Paul says, was Paul crucified? The heart of our salvation is that Jesus died for us. And we're united to him in his death. We're united to him and we're forgiven. We receive forgiveness because we're identified with Christ. Our debt is paid because we're identified with Christ. Not because we pay it, but because Christ has paid it for us. If we stand apart from Christ, we're dead. We got nothing. We have no way to cover our sins. But if we're united to Christ, then in Christ we have life. So third, was Christ divided? This is, believe it or not, I think this is a way of Paul saying, like, we belong to Jesus. Okay, Paul is making at least two points here. So, we belong to Jesus. We, it's not that we get our little piece of Jesus and then we're cool. Okay? It's not like we have a magic token, right? Magic Jesus token. We don't, salvation's not about having like a Jesus lucky rabbit foot or having some Jesus dollars deposited in our account and then we're fine. Right? Because then you could imagine, you know, Christ being divided and everybody gets their peace. But Christ was not divided. We are united to him. We belong to Jesus. We don't have a piece of Jesus that belongs to us. And the good news is, as a result, we have all of Jesus. Now, later in this letter and in other places in the Bible, too, Paul talks about the church, the church as the body of Christ. All right. So in our salvation, we're united to Christ as saved people. We're united to Christ. If each of us is united to Christ, each of us is united as one. And so when he says, was Christ divided? To have divisions in the church is to divide Christ. And you should think on that image a little. And it should be revolting to you. When there are divisions in the church, when we tear at each other, we are dividing the risen one to whom we are united. And also, Paul makes the point pretty clear. Paul is not our Savior. 
Right? These are rhetorical questions because everybody knows Paul wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. The Savior is Jesus. And more broadly, no other good thing is our Savior. Forget leaders. No other good thing can save us. Our family wasn't crucified for us. We aren't baptized into the name of our parents, spouse, and holy children. Your children won't raise you from the dead, no matter how much you try to live on through them. Our career won't forgive us. If we baptize ourselves into the name of career advancement or professional success, every time you fail your career, it will punish you. Our politics won't save us. Was your political party crucified for you? Right? Were we baptized into the name of our race or culture or political affiliation? The pursuit of romance won't save us. Our own morality won't save us. The fleeting momentary ecstasy of sex or drugs or losing a few pounds or climbing another mountain or a political win or a promotion will pass away and leave us more desperately clinging for the resurrection that they cannot promise. All the ways that we divide, all the ways that we demonize others are because we forget the fundamental picture of our salvation. That we belong to a Savior who lived, died, and rose again victorious. And so, we have the power to overcome divisions. Not because it's easy. Two reasons, and they're the same reason. The power that unites us is the power of the resurrection, right? Jesus died and he rose indestructible, victorious over sin and death and evil. What division in the church is more powerful than death? That same power is at work in us. So, there is no division that the power of the resurrection should not be able to overcome. And if we're giving into divisions, it's because we're not living in the light of the resurrection. So second, and it's the same, we share in the Holy Spirit. That power, that resurrection power comes to us in the very personal presence of God. If somebody you disagree with or you dislike or whatever... If that person belongs to Jesus, if they're filled with God's personal presence, I mean, how are you going to exclude them? How can you look and be like, I know God is upon that person, but, you know, I just don't like the way they do their thing. Right? The greatest equalizer is the Holy Spirit, which is who is freely given to God's people. Okay. So finally, the power of the person. So, Paul concludes this section with, I think, a somewhat odd statement. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we could say a lot about this, and in fact, next week's sermon is about this, so I'm not going to steal the thunder. I'll be brief. So, very quickly, why not use eloquent wisdom? I mean, gospel means good news. So why not deliver that news clearly and effectively? 
if the, go- if the gospel was primarily information, then we should present that information clearly and convincingly. Right? And, and we do preach. I'm, I do preach in a way that I hope you understand. Right? Isn't that wisdom? Right? Of course. And we try to speak convincingly. Right? right? When, when we talk to friends or neighbors or family members, we try to speak convincingly. Isn't that, isn't that eloquence? Right? Of course. So why does Paul say he wasn't sent to use eloquent wisdom? Because the heart of the gospel isn't primarily information. It's a person. The good news is not information about a person, but it's the person himself. The power of the cross is the power of the person on it. Christianity isn't a new agenda. It's not a new strategy for your life. It's not a new social program. Christianity is a new person. A new person, new to us, who created all things, who lived a perfect life, and who bought you with his death. It's a new relationship with somebody who rose from the dead to indestructible eternal life. And so Paul's job isn't to communicate information. Paul's job was to introduce the Corinthians to a person. The most compassionate, beautiful, wise, powerful person there ever was. Have you encountered the one who stills the storm? Do you know that person? Have you encountered the only person who can give you everlasting, never-ending satisfaction way more than anything that we could ever hope for out of the idol's that we could devote our lives to? Have you encountered the one who is physically torn apart for you, who is torn away from the Father's face so that he would never be divided from you? Do you know the one who delights over you the way a mother delights over her baby child? Only the power of that person can help us overcome our divisions and can free us from the idols of our heart and allow us to live harmoniously for him. Let's pray. God, we want to know you and the power of your resurrection, the power of the cross. God, we pray that you would be powerfully present with us now as we come together to worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen.